I'm glad that we can all be here today. Um, it's good that we uh, have this opportunity to come together. So, first off, I'm I'm Ben Howard. Uh, thanks. I'm a, I'm a deacon here with H2O. Uh, and since a lot of people are out of country right now, uh, I'm here to deliver the message for us this morning. So, secondly, happy Mother's Day. I don't know how many mothers are in the crowd. I know there's at least two because my mom and grandmother are here. Uh, so, thanks to them. Our mom's great. Uh, I'm not going to preach my mom's. So just going to talk about this real quick. I, got, I forgot a water bottle, so I have uh, my mom's cup today. So my name's not Jody, but it's my mom's name. <laughs> cool. So I'm going to get into this real quick because I have a lot to cover today, which might be confusing when you hear the book that I'm going to talk about. I'm talking about Jude, which uh, a lot of you probably don't know much about the book of Jude. It's the second to last book in the Bible. Uh, it is the fifth shortest book in the Bible at only 461 words in the original Greek. Uh, but despite being so short, uh, it's really confusing. And it's going to take a lot of work for us to really get the meaning out of it. And the reason for that is that Jude, uh, he, he's teaching a simple message very quickly. But to do so, he uses a lot of references and metaphors that work really well if you understand them. And that are really confusing if you don't. So we're going to take some time, and we are going to unpack those, and then we're going to figure out what they mean for us. So uh, I have something really exciting to tell you. You're getting a double feature today. Uh, I'm giving you a lecture on Jude, <laughs> that's what I'm calling it, and then a sermon on Jude, because there is a lot of history and context to unpack here. So if you're a note taker, today is your day. Uh, if not, I have these slides saved. I've got my notes. If you want them later, you can have them. If you want to talk to me, you can do that. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into this. God, I'm so grateful for this time that we have to come together. I'm grateful for your word, uh, for its meaning in our lives. God, I ask that you be with us. Just help us to understand these difficult and confusing things. Uh, we're grateful for, for who you are and all that you do. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Cool. So I'm going to go ahead and get started with our lecture. So let's get this lecture going. So a lecture on Jude. Here's my subtitle. I call it Examining the Biblical, Cultural, and Historical Context Surrounding the Book of Jude. Sound academic enough? I hope so. So I wanted to do this for a couple reasons. One, because Jude, like I said, it's, it's very confusing if you don't know what's going on. And two is there's this really bad misconception and understanding around Christianity that, that Christianity and intellectualism just don't mix. This idea that we're all just like blindly believing this book that's made up of fairy tales and, and constant nonsense. But in reality, once you dig into the Christian faith and you look through the Bible, you find that there is a lot of scholarly work that goes into understanding this. And so I want to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit for those of us who don't spend that much time looking at that and give just a little bit of background on that. So I'm going full out here in the lecture. I gave us some learning goals. So our learning goals, I got four learning goals, yeah. I know, I, Ohio Board of Education, look me up. Uh, anyway, our first learning goal, steps for making sense out of confusing passages. I'm going to give us a few steps. They're easy to use. Uh, that when you're reading a confusing passage, you can take these and apply them directly. Uh, number two, greater appreciation for the scriptures. Uh, I, I just want us to... Uh, Really just, like I said, understand that there's, there's a massive amount of scholarly work of intellectualism that goes into understanding what the scriptures have for us, understanding how the scriptures relate to themselves, and how we should uh, take more care when we read the scriptures. And then three is understanding the references and metaphors in Jude. That's one of the bigger learning goals here. I want to preach on Jude, but in order to preach on Jude, you really need to understand everything that's happening in Jude. 
And then lastly, number four, we're just going to explore a couple apocryphal texts. If you don't know what the word apocryphal means, uh, it means something that might be true, but, but probably isn't. There's uh, dubious claims over its, uh, over its accuracy. The apocrypha, you might have heard of it if you grew up in the Catholic Church. That's some extra books they throw on there that kind of existed around the Bible, and they threw them in sometime in the medieval period. I can't remember when. Didn't put it in my notes. So, let's go ahead and jump on to our first thing, which is our steps for making sense out of confusing passages. So our steps for making sense out of confusing passages. Number one, look at the context around a passage. Really try and zoom out and look at the whole book. So, so figure out things like who the author is, figure out things like um, the original audience, things like why it was written and, and the type of literature it was. This will really give you a better understanding of how you need to read the book, put it into some context and help you understand things, especially when it, when it comes to the biblical timeline where things are taking place. So the next thing is that we're going to try and gain an understanding and look for references and metaphors. So like I said with Jude, he uses a lot of references and metaphors. And those, those work really well when you're teaching and you teach with metaphors, but only if you understand the metaphor or the reference. So there's this phrase that, that uh, I've heard a lot that, that really just embodies Jude, and it's that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. The Bible was written for us, so it's for our good, we should read it, it has good things in there for us, but it wasn't written to us. So Jude, when he wrote this letter originally, he wasn't thinking of a 21st century crowd of mostly college students in Ohio, in the United States, in a continent that he didn't even know existed. He was writing to a particular audience that wasn't us, and so when he's using those references, he's writing with them in mind. So we have to dig into that to figure that stuff out. So I want to show something real cool here. I've got this chart. So the Bible, it, it talks to itself a lot. It's 66 books. It's not one book. Uh, the Bible is more of a library than it is a book. And this chart, so you have, uh, so you've got lines above. That's so that they're referencing something later in the Bible. Lines below, they're referencing something earlier in the Bible. All those red lines, those are predictions of things in the New Testament. All those blue lines, those are references to things back in the Old Testament. Uh, and I've not fact-checked this, it's a lot of lines to look up, but from having read the Bible for a while, I can say this looks pretty accurate to me. Uh, next thing I wanna do is I wanna, I wanna show you where, where we get these things. So I've got another picture up here. Uh, you might have seen this in your Bibles. There's a, in, your, in your physical Bibles, you've got these little references over here on the side. These are verses that the verses that you're reading connect to, whether they're quoting them, relating to them, or it's showing you where that, that character or figure comes from. Uh, the Bible, it is super interconnected. These are everywhere when you're reading, you will find these verse references. And then if you're using your digital Bible app, you have these little like text box or like comments that most of them have uh, verse references as well. So that's just something to consider when you're reading. The Bible is super interconnected. The next thing is we, the next step for understanding confusing passages, uh, I know I'm moving fast, but I want to get through this, uh, is look at the words that you don't understand. So, or the words that are important to the passage. So I have uh, this nifty little tool over here. I can show you how to do this in real time. Uh, so if you don't understand a word, you can look it up in the dictionary. Uh, words with multiple meanings in English are good ones to look up, or especially words with significance to the passage. 
And then also something that's super useful is to look through the original language or to look through other translations to try and help. So what I've got here is this website called Bible Hub. Let me see if I can bring it up. There it goes. So right behind me, BibleHub.com. So we're going to look at a couple things real quick. Jude 1.3. You've got all your different Bible translations here. And you can go over here, you can go to interlinear, and it'll show you the Greek, and you can look up definitions and things. We'll come back to this in a little bit when I look up a few words. But super useful, super helpful. There are tools out there to make this easier. Then lastly is uh, don't overlook the simple messages and passages. Uh, there might be confusing passages. Jude is one of them. Uh, but there are still things that we can understand from those. Almost every passage in the Bible has a clear message that you can understand, and learning the context will help you just understand that message better. It's not going to contradict it. There's no like secret hidden message in the Bible that when you add up all the verse numbers, you unlock the, the secret code to life. There's nothing like that in the scriptures. No, the context, the, this hidden or deeper meaning, it just helps us understand these bigger meanings better. Don't try jumping to confusing conclusions. That's where people go wrong. That's where you get these weird, bad theologies. So I'm going to start with this last step here, and we're just going to dive headfirst into Jude and see what we can take away from that without really any study at all. So I'm going to read the whole of Jude. We're going to see what we can take away, and we're going to start breaking it down. So starting first verse of Jude, reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment of the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare to utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand, and what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. 
It was about these Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers living according to their own desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end times there will be scoffers living, among, living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. And have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So that's 25 verses, 461 words in the original Greek. I don't know how many of that translation was in English. Uh, if you're a student of your Bible, you've probably got a few of that. If you're a more advanced student of your Bible, you're probably confused because you're like, uh, there's some things that really don't make sense in there. Uh, and I'll get into that in a second. But let's just, let's just look at the simple things here, things that, that anybody can take away from reading this who can read. So one, Jude was diverted from writing on salvation to address false teachers. Two, these false teachers, they're like deceivers from the Old Testament. Three, these false teachers have been expected by multiple people who've come before. And lastly, we respond to these false teachers by staying strong in the faith. We do this through prayer, keeping in the love of God, and waiting for the return for Christ. These are simple themes. These aren't things that are going to get overturned when we look at the study. We're not going to find some secret meaning that's going to open our minds and reveal this new passage. People who try and do that, they're lying to you. They're trying to usurp scripture and usurp God's authority. Don't listen to them. Actually, these are some of the people that, that, that Jude's talking about. Cool. So let's go ahead and apply our, let's go ahead and apply our steps. We, we've, we've looked for the simple. Now let's start, let's start at the top. So let's look, let's look for context. So we're going to look for uh, five things here. We're going to look for the author, the audience, when it was written, why it was written, and the type of literature. And the best place to search for these things, uh, in New Testament books especially, is right there at the beginning of the book. Usually it gives you a lot of the information. So the first four verses, I've got them up on the screen. I'm just going to read them again real quick, and we're going to see what we can pull away just from these four verses. So we have Jude. Okay, I think we found the author. A, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who are the called, I think we found the audience. Loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing you to contend for the faith that was delivered once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ our only Master and Lord. Cool. So, read those four verses. Definitely got the author. Definitely got the audience. I think we can figure out why it was written. He, he makes it pretty clear. Um, when it was written, got to do a little bit of work for that. So I've got this stuff on the next thing here, 40 AD to 100 AD. That's because he's talking about Jesus, first generation disciple, first generation apostle. So had to he's writing to the church. So it couldn't be before, really, 40 AD. Probably didn't live much past 100 AD. So that's a good window. 
We'll, we'll narrow it down on the second one when I give you a little bit more context. Um, and then lastly, the, so I, why it was written, to encourage people to contend for the faith and to fight against false teachers. And lastly, uh, because of this opening, we know it's, it's an epistle, which means letter. I mean, he opens it with his name, like when you write a letter, it's like, hi, it's me, Ben, uh, to whoever I'm writing to. Uh, I don't write letters that often, so I don't know who I would write to. Usually it's emails. That'd be a better example. Hi. Anyway, uh, so it's an epistle. So we've got, we got some good stuff here. Let's look for some more detail with an additional context. Starting with the author of who Jude is. So Jude, the brother of James, that's how he announces himself. I got my next slide here. So Jude is actually probably pronounced Judah. Uh, and the reason that we get this wrong is because of something called transliteration, which sounds like a big fancy word. It's actually really sim simple. The definition of transliteration, I've got it up there. Uh, it's the practice of writing or printing a letter or word using the closest corresponding letters of a different alphabet or script. Definitions are kind of confusing. I like to use examples. I got an example in this one. This guy, Bruce Lee, awesome. Uh, so up at the top, that's his original name in Chinese. I think it's uh, Cantonese because he's from Hong Kong. I don't know. I don't know anything about Chinese. Uh, but that's his original name in the, in the characters. His original name is Li Jun Fan. Uh, and then when we transliterate that to Latin letters, we get Li Jun Fan. And, and it's pretty simple. You lose a little bit of uh, the, the minor details there. Uh, if you don't know anything about Chinese and you just read English, you might look at his name in the Latin letters and go, Li Jun Fan, which is usually what happens. So that's what's happening here. So but with a few more steps, this next slide I'm going to show you with two examples. The first is Jesus. Jesus' name in Hebrew is actually Yeshua or Yehoshua. I don't know. I couldn't speak Hebrew to save my life. Uh, but that's what it looks like in Hebrew, that, that first word. Uh, couldn't make anything out of that. So we put it in, in uh, English letters of how we would pronounce it if we transliterated it one-to-one. -one. But the problem was they transliterated Hebrew into Greek. The Greek, Yeshua. It, it, they had an S on the end for some reason. So if you don't know how to pronounce it, you say, oh yeah, Lysuus. And then Latin, they did the same thing, Jesus, and now we got Jesus. Same thing over here with Jude, Yehuda, or Judas. Actually, Jude is Judas. If you were to be translated correctly in the New Testament sense, it's probably Judas. Uh, but Judas is also a mistranslation of Judah. Anyway, uh, in Latin, you get Judah, and then eventually we got Jude. And there's just a quick history lesson how we get Jude. His real name is Judah or Judas. So now that we know that, let's look for which Jude uh, or Judas this could be. So we've got six in the New Testament alone, six different Judases or Judas in the New Testament. We're going to figure out who it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to skip to the conclusion at the end, but we're just going to run through them real quick. So the first is Judas Iscariot. It's probably not him. He's dead and also a, a traitor. I don't think it's Judas Iscariot. <laughs> Uh, the second is Judas, the son of James, also called Thaddeus. He's another apostle. That's a good contender right there. Could be Judas, the son of James. Maybe he meant to say son of James and not brother of James. Maybe he got confused. Maybe the words are confusing. We don't know. We do, but <laughs> right now we don't. Third is Judas the Galilean. He was a false messiah. He's mentioned in Acts 5.37. He was dead long before Jesus showed up on the scene, so it's not him. So we got two worked out. So we only had four. Not bad. Third is Judas, the homeowner in Damascus. Paul stayed with him when, uh, uh, he was blind. Probably not him. He's really minor. Fifth is Judas Barsabbas, a leader in the Jerusalem church. And sixth is Judas, the half-brother of Jesus, who also had a brother named James. 
I'm going to skip to all the work that goes into this. There's a lot of work that goes into this. There's also just the church tradition, which is the church has a historical tradition that passed down through text and through word that says it's Judah or Judas, Jesus' half-brother, who has a brother named James, so it works out. Though the brother named James isn't narrow much down either. There's four James in the New Testament. Judah and James are kind of like super common names. Like we've got like, what, four or five? No, how many Sarahs do we have in our church? So many Sarahs. I'm married to one. Um, anyway, so I'm going to update all our context. This is what we've got now. We update everything. Skip just straight to the end. This is, this is all our context on, on the book of Judah. So Jude, my brother James, he's a half-brother Jesus. That's how we know the author is. Audience, the called. The Greek word is kletos, kletos. Uh, couldn't speak Greek, I don't know. Uh, it's a congregation of Jewish Christians. We know it's a congregation of Jewish Christians because he uses some deep cuts when it comes to Jewish literature. He is talking about stuff that he assumes people know way more about the Jewish literature than we do. And when it was written, AD 65, uh, just based on surrounding context, we got a bunch of different uh, church tradition and all that stuff. Why it was written, that's still pretty clear. The type of literature, also still pretty clear. Cool. We've got our context. Awesome. Now let's look at some words, get a useful definition. So I've highlighted a few words here. Oh yeah, forgot about this one. Sorry. I'm not looking at my notes well enough. So here's a good example of where we get some of this context. Second Peter. Second Peter is actually almost identical to, Second Peter chapter 2 is almost identical in many ways to the book of Jude. He uses, so there's a little guide here, is the same type of language, denying the master, deny our only master. God did not spare the angels. He's that same. So all the way down here. Second Peter, it's longer, so we get a lot more detail surrounding. They're probably writing to the same people what was going on. So that's just one example, but there's a lot of examples of words in this context. Now, I'm going to look at these words. So we've got, I've highlighted a few words here so we can apply our, our principles. So the first word, salvation. It's a really important word. So I'm going to go back over to this tool that I showed you earlier. We're going to look it up. Cool. So salvation, soterios. So you can look up the Greek word, click on it, see other places where it's used. Oh, well, it's translated to salvation every time, so I'm pretty sure salvation's a good word. We'll go back, and then you can click up here and look at its definition. Deliverance or salvation, super simple. Salvation's real easy. We know that one's salvation. Next one's contend, contend earnestly, which when we click on this, this is the only time this word, this particular word is used, uh, and it's kind of a, a, a mashup of words. And it means uh, to basically fight or contend for intentionally. And then our last word here is sensuality. We'll talk about this. Well, sensuality or licentiousness. Again, this is the only time this word's used in the Bible. But when it gets used in other Greek texts, we have an idea based on the context of what its definition is. So we can look here at its definition. Licentiousness or wantonness. And you can also see that it comes from a different word. So it's got a root word, which means brutal. So has uh, a good origin in understanding where it comes from. So there's our tool. You can use that whenever you're looking at different words. I'm, I'm not going to use that from here on out. I'm just going to give you the, the quick conclusion. But I wanted to show you how that works because it's been a super helpful tool for me. And if you're getting confused when you're reading, I hope that you will try and use it as well. Cool. So we've got our context. We've looked at our opening. Let's move on to our next section. Now we're getting where things get fun. So I'm going to read verses 5 to 11 again. Now I want to remind you, although you knew all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. Here's his first example. Jesus saved a people out of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. 
He goes over to the second example here, second reference. And the angels did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment of the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah, third, and, and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Then in verse 8, in the same way, these people relying on their dreams defile flesh and reject authority and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand, and what they do understand like instinct, by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, they have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. So we've got seven different references here. We're going to look up. We're going to do them pretty quick. So try and keep up with me. So our first, next time we get the Israelites on the exodus from Egypt. Second, uh, but yeah, it doesn't matter. We'll just, we'll go through them one at a time. Israelites on the exodus from Egypt. I've got some verses that connect here. So this is talking back to an old time in the Old Testament. The Israelites came out of Egypt. They were happy. God rescued them. And then immediately they were upset and grumpy because their life wasn't as pleasant as they hoped it would be. So I've got a couple verses here. I'm going to read real quick out of Numbers. Then the whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Then skipping down a little bit later, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, How long must I endure this evil community that keeps complaining about me? I have heard the Israelites' complaints that they make against me. Tell them, as I live, this is the Lord's declaration. I will do exactly as I heard you say. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. All of you who are registered in the census, the entire number of you, 20 years old or more, because you have complained about me. So the example that Judah's using here is these Israelites, they came out, they followed God, and then they, they refused to listen to him. They said, man, it'd be better off if we just died out here. And God said, okay, I'll do that for you. And they were trapped outside of the promised land, wandered for an additional 40 years, and died in the wilderness. Second illustration here. So our next thing, the angels who did not keep their place. This one's a little more spooky, a little more interesting. Angels did not keep their place. So I got to really only, there's only a few verses in the Bible that talk about this, and I'll get into what source talks about this in more detail later. So one verse here in Genesis 6, when mankind began to multiply in the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward. When the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were the men, powerful men of old, the famous men. So here we get like a frustratingly brief amount of text on angels. So a cool topic I wish I could know more about. And this uh, text it gets expounded on later in the book of First Enoch. It's not in your Bible. Uh, don't feel like, oh crap, First Enoch. Is that after hesitation? It's not in there. Uh, it's somewhere else. Uh, we'll get into First Enoch in a bit. But this is the first time that Jude references First Enoch. So these angels, they left the place where they were meant to be, and they disobeyed God's will for them and came down on earth and did things they weren't supposed to do. 
Uh, real quick, what are the Nephilim? I've got that highlighted. What are the Nephilim? That's a good question. Thanks for asking. Uh, no one really knows. Uh, it's one of those questions that we don't really have an answer to. Uh, it's talked about in the book of First Enoch. That's probably what inspired the book of First Enoch to try and figure out what the heck they are. Uh, in the Hebrew, it kind of means giants. Uh, giants. A little just note here that's kind of interesting. A the ancient Middle Eastern peoples that were around them at the time, they, their like origin stories uh, claim that they came from giants. So just a little, little piece of context that I find interesting. All right, our next example, Sodom and Gomorrah. You probably knew this one. It's talked about a lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, so I've got verses here from Genesis 18. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. And later on, he, he finds out. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, if I know about them, extremely sinful cities, known especially for sexual sin. Uh, they were sinful, and God punished them for it. Now let's move on to our fourth example, which if you're a, a real good student of your Bible, this one probably is the most confused, because you're like, hey Ben, this isn't in there, and you'd be correct. This is not in there. Michael and Satan disputing over Moses' body. Uh, most of the, of the detail in this story, it's like the only time it's ever referenced in the Bible, it's all theory for the most part because it's been lost. We think it came from a text called, uh, this apocryphal book called The Testament of Moses or The Assumption of Moses. But the reason behind this dispute is unknown. I've got a little bit of context down here for one verse where Moses, is di where Moses dies in Deuteronomy 34. Um, I'll read this real quick. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the Lord's word. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab facing Beth Peor, and no one to this day knows where his grave is. Notice the he there, he buried, that's God buried Moses' body. That's interesting. The best kind of uh, explanation I've heard kind of surrounding this is that uh, God hid Moses' body when he buried it so that it wouldn't be used for worship, which actually wound up happening in the first century. We wound up taking the finger bones and bones from all these different saints and then using them as kind of an idol type of worship. And uh, so they wanted to hide the body. Maybe Satan wanted to get that body out there. Again, it's all, it's all theory. But the moral that we'll take away from it that I'll talk about in my sermon part of this talk uh, it is pretty clear, thankfully. So, so our next thing, Cain. This is another one you guys probably knew about. Cain, that's the guy who killed his brother. Correct. But Cain, there's, there's a little more context here that's being used. So I'll, I'll read this verse, and then I'll feed you the, the Jewish context that's not in the Bible. So Cain, Genesis 4, verse 6 says, then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Not much there until you know the Jewish context around this, which in Jewish tradition, Cain's land was, Cain's considered to be like the father of murder and violence just comes from his line. He went and built the city, it became an incredibly violent city. That's what they talk about. There's a uh, first century Jewish historian, Josephus, we talk about him a, a, a bit. He actually wrote on Cain. He claimed Cain was the first tyrant. So Cain, he's being used as an example here, not only as a, a murderer, but as a guy who went and created a land of violence. So our next example, Balaam. Some of you might remember this guy. Isn't it the donkey guy? Yeah, the donkey guy. This is uh, the guy who uh, the donkey was, who he was riding on, had his mouth open so he could tell him, hey, 
Paul says, oh, there's an angel in front of us that's going to kill you if you try and go that way. That's that guy. There's, there's way more to him than just the donkey guy. So I want to read this context here out of Genesis 22. So here's the verses here. Since Balak, son of Zippor, was Moab's king at the time, he sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor, at Pethor, which, confusing names, am I right? Which is by the Euphrates in the land of his people. Balak said to him, look, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the surface of the land and are living across from me. Please come and put a curse on these people for me because they are more powerful than I am. I may be able to defeat them and drive them out from the land. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. So Balaam, he was brought on as a prophet for hire. He was, isn't that fun? Prophet for hire. If you misspell it, it's kind of prophet for hire. Prophet for profit, you could say. That's funny. He was, I think he finally got a laugh. Uh, uh, he was used to curse Israel. But the interesting thing that happened with Balaam, he was brought out. He tried to curse Israel three times and wound up blessing them because God refused to let Israel be cursed. It's actually an interesting line here. Uh, The the king of Moab says to Balaam, I know that those you bless will be blessed and those you curse will be cursed. That's what God said to the Israelites. God's more powerful than Balaam. But Balaam was crafty and he knew how to get the Israelites in trouble. So he lured them into sin through prostitution and idol worship. And because of that, a great plague struck the Israelites and death came about. So Balaam prophet for prophet who uh, got the Israelites in a lot of trouble. Then lastly, Korah's rebellion. You might not know much about this. It's briefly talked about in the book of Numbers, which doesn't get enough love. So the book of Numbers, here's what it says. Now Korah, son of Esar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peloth, sons of Reuben, took 250 prominent Israelite men who were leaders of the community and representatives in the assembly, and they rebelled against Moses. They came together against Moses and Aaron and told them, you have gone too far. Everyone in the entire community is holy, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the Lord's assembly? That's the start of it. It ends rather poorly for these rebels. So this is a group of, of, of uh, leaders in the, in, the, in, the, in the Israelite tribe, who rebelled against Moses' authority, which is God's authority because God put Moses in charge. Because of that, the earth swallowed up 250 men, and then later a plague came and killed 14,700 people. So death has come from all three of these last people. Cool. That's all our, that's all our references for this, for this section. Let's, let's keep moving. Let's keep trucking so we can finally get into what this means for us. Our next section, verses 12 and 13. These are dangerous reefs, there's one metaphor, at your love feasts as they eat with you without reference. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up in their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. Two verses, but we got six metaphors, so let's go ahead and get into them. The dangerous reefs, the selfish shepherds, the waterless clouds, the fruitless twice-dead trees, the wild waves, and the wandering stars. These metaphors, they're all connected to the cultural context of the people, and they also have some layers in the Old Testament and scriptures as well. So let's start with the first one, dangerous reefs. So the, the Greek word spilates, it's the word meaning reefs or hidden rocks. Occasionally in some of your translations, it might be translated as blemish or stain. This is it being used in a figurative sense. Reefs is a better translation, but we as people who don't often sail don't really 
understand what reefs are. Uh, they're not just like beautiful things that coral grow on. They're just sharp, dangerous things that are close to the surface of the water that will wreck your boat if you hit them. So then another context, the reefs at love feasts. Love feasts, they were an early Christian practice. Uh, they were uh, a shared meal before the communion, and it was just basically time for the, the church community to get together, share a meal, spend time with one another, and, and, and love each other, a love feast. So I want to show you an example. i got a picture here. This is what happens when you hit a reef that you, that you don't see. This is a boat covered in Haitian migrants uh, that smacked a reef off the Florida Everglades out there in the middle of the ocean. There's just a rock that's sitting up too close to the surface. This is the imagery that these people would have understood because they were probably near the sea or had spent some time on the sea. A lot of people fished and boats were the best form of trade at the time. So they would know the danger that reefs pose, that you could die simply by missing a hidden reef. So our next metaphor here, the selfish shepherds. The selfish shepherds actually comes from, uh, uh, so they understood it because they understood what shepherds were. We don't have many shepherds now. Uh, I came from a farming community, but... Uh, not really too many shepherds. We had some sheep up the street from us, but I don't know if they'd call themselves shepherds. We've got better fences now, I think. <laughs> but anyway, the self of shepherds, there's some verses that also connect to this as well. So I've got a, some verses here out of Ezekiel. So here's what the Lord says in Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. So here, shepherd is being used kind of metaphorically again to the, the leaders of Israel. So just think of that. This, this isn't him talking to some crappy shepherd. This is him talking to the leaders of Israel. Anyway, woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. There, like I said, he's talking to the, the leaders of Israel. This shepherd's analogy would, would work on many layers to uh, the people that Jude is talking to. Uh, we would probably be thinking about this. And honestly, I couldn't put it any better than this, so let's move on to the next one. The next one is waterless clouds. Uh, and we've got an example out of uh, Proverbs that, that uses this as well. So Proverbs talks about a waterless cloud. It says, the one who boasts about a gift that does not exist is like clouds and wind without rain. Uh, so a little bit of cultural context here. These people grew up in and around the desert. Rain would have been essential, especially if you were a farmer. We get a lot of rain here in Ohio. I think you know that because the last month, I think it's been 90% rain. Feels like it at least. But out there, not as much. And so to see a cloud brings hope. You're like, ah, oh, yes, some rain and some water. And then a cloud blows by and no rain. That's a false hope. So that's what these waterless clouds are to these people that Jude is talking to. So our next thing, these fruitless, twice-dead trees. Actually, the best verse I have for this that connects to this, you might think of fruitless trees. Jesus was talking about one. So Jesus uh, finds this fig tree and uh, curses it for not bearing fruit. He says, the next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find it there and was nothing on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. 
So here it's the metaphor for people. Fruit is good work. Kindness, all that good stuff. Uh, but also, there's, there's another layer. We don't typically care for fruit trees out here, so you might not know how fruit, difficult fruit trees can be, especially now that we've got some mutant fruit trees that are super strong, drought-resistant, bug-resistant, all these great things. Thanks, Papa Monsanto. If you were a farming community, you'd be laughing. I'm sorry. I'm talking in references that you don't understand in a book about references you don't understand. But these uh, fruit trees, they require a lot of effort and water. Uh, Fruit trees that need to be pruned and cared for, they have to be protected from pests, birds, squirrels, all these things. You gotta get those things out of there so they don't take your fruit. And they need more water, especially in a desert community. That's a serious amount of effort. And then if a fruit tree doesn't bring any fruit, you've wasted all this time and effort to care for something that does nothing but take from you. So that's what these fruit trees are for the people that Jude is talking about. Our next thing are these wild waves, which we have some biblical imagery here in Isaiah 57. Here it says, the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its water churns up mire and muck. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. There's the biblical imagery, and then also just waves are dangerous to people who are out in the ocean. Uh, and when you live near or on the Mediterranean Sea, you're going to be afraid of some, some wild and chaotic waves. Next thing, wandering stars. So the thing about wandering stars, we don't, there aren't, there's a bunch of verses about stars, but not necessarily verses about wandering stars. This is talking more to a cultural context. Wandering stars uh, would be very dangerous to sailors because stars were used for navigating. And the reason they use stars is because they're constant in the sky. You know when you look at the North Star, that is roughly north. Especially when you know a lot more about stars than I do, and you can use that to find your way from Tyre to Sidon. Um, but... He also talks about the blackness of darkness being reserved forever for these people, for these stars that he calls them. This is simply just hell. Uh, so these are people who lead people astray, and because of that, they are waiting for hell. Cool. We have done it. We've done that. We've gotten through those six. We've got one more section before we can get into the sermon. <laughs> I'll go through this one real quick. This is our next section. This is about false teachers being predicted across time. So we got a few references here. Things are about to get fun. So for, starting in verse 14, it was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end times there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. So we've got two things here. We've got the prediction of Enoch, and we have the prediction of the apostles and Jesus. So let's look at the prediction of Enoch here. You won't find this in your Bible. Like I said, this comes from the book of First Enoch. So, I want to talk about the book of First Enoch. We've, we've mentioned it a few times, you probably don't know much about it. That's because it's a book that's not in our Bibles, and we don't use it very often. So the book of First Enoch, it's attributed to Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam. If you go back into Genesis 5, uh, it talks about Enoch. And Enoch gets this cool line. Enoch, it says, walked with God. And then he was not there because God took him. So in this, this chapter in Genesis 5, it talks about all these different people. They lived for however many years, and then they died. And all of them died except for Enoch, who walks with God and then wasn't there. 
that's a cool dude. <laughs> I want to know more about him. And that's why the book of Enoch was written. So it is attributed to him, though it is likely he didn't write it, uh, if for no other reason than uh, the flood. You know, you can't really have many documents. He comes before the flood, make it after the flood, unless Noah took it onto the ark or knew it, had it memorized. I don't know. Maybe. But it explores the less clear details of Genesis. It's really a book that's kind of like a uh, spin-off of the Bible, where it takes this, these random lines, like these Nephilim. What are they? Okay, let's, let's talk about that. Enoch, this guy who walked with God, who's he? Well, let's try and figure that out. It really tries to broaden it out. It wasn't considered canon by the Jews or early Christians. That, that mean it, they didn't think it was authoritative. It wasn't officially part of the scriptures. But it was read by them. The Jews, especially in the, the 300s on, really liked this book. They found it really informative. They, they read out of it. They knew it. Early Christians enjoyed it as well. But the first time this, this book was written down, at least what we have fragments of, is between 300 and 200 B.C. It's the first time it was ever written down. Maybe it was kept in an oral tradition before then. But that was the first time that we ever have seen it written. And uh, it predicts God's coming judgment. It's got some really cool, some really biblical, awesome stuff in there. And then it also has some really bad stuff. Like it says that Enoch's the Messiah. Enoch is not the Messiah. That's Jesus. So not, aren't many people really trying to push the book of Enoch as being a lost book of the Bible because it really doesn't work? I honestly think that... Uh, if I were to use a pr present day comparison, I think if 2,000 years from now, some people managed to uncover the uh, Left Behind series. I don't know if any of you know what the Left Behind series are. John knows. <laughs> He's laughing. Left Behind series kind of are a fictionalized idea of what the rapture would look like. I think that if we found those without knowing the context, 2,000 years from now, we might say, hmm, this is an extra book of the Bible talking about the rapture. That's my opinion on Enoch. That's not shared by many people, but after reading it, I, that's, the feel, that's the feeling it gets. Then the next apocryphal book I want to talk about, I mentioned only once, is where that debate between Moses and uh, Adam talked about. Where did that John verse come from? I don't have this in here at all. Oh, no. I don't know if my slides transferred over properly. Oh, there it is. Cool. So the assumption of Moses, uh, the testament of Moses, it's called different things. It gets translated in different ways. It's an apocryphal book. Uh, we found it sometime in the, the, written in the 100 AD era, sometime around then. And it claims to have the prophecies that were handed down from Moses to Joshua, these prophecies that, that aren't in the Torah that Moses gave specifically to Joshua. Um, the reference in Judah is, it came from a missing section of the work. So there's about a third of it that's missing. This debate over Moses' body isn't in there, but we think that it probably was, and it's in that third that's missing which is why that we have no idea what's going on. But it's another book, kind of like the book of First Enoch, tries to fill in missing details, kind of make theories about Moses. Moses is a super big character to the Jews, so they wanted to, to talk about him and, and kind of theorize on him. That's where the assumption of Moses comes in. There's that. So now I, wanna, I just want to pause for a second and just, why does Judah reference these books? They're not in the Bible. They're really weird. But the reason is because of the people at the time would have known them and respected them. Uh, I think the best example I have for us today is a book that gets quoted very often in our church, at least, which is uh, the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's not the Bible, but we do like to quote it a lot because it has a lot of great insight, and a lot of us have read it, or uh, at least know about it. So that is why Judah references it, not necessarily because he believes that it has some inherent authority in it, but because he knows it will be helpful for teaching the people that he is trying to teach. So next is the references uh, that of 
the predictions made by Jesus and his apostles. I've got two here. We've got one made by Jesus and one made by Peter. There's plenty more, but these are just two I liked and I pulled out. So one, Jesus, Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. Then Peter, in 2 Peter 3, says, Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, Where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. All right, we did it. We are through all the context in Jude. Give yourselves an applause. We did it. This is awesome. <laughs> I hope that made sense. This is a confusing book, and it needed that. I, I, I really didn't see much of a way of getting around all of that talking to tr really try and preach this simple message on Jude. What is it? 1142? Let's go. We got this. The message of Jude is super simple. Now that you understand the references, we can get through it together. Okay. Sermon time. It's sermon time. What did I call my sermon? Prepare for false teachers and apostates. That's the title of this sermon. So I'm going to transition away from all the context. I'm not going to really go into that because we just did. And now I'm going to transition into how this applies to us. So we're going to go through this section by section. We're going to start with section one, which is the opening, verses one through four. So here, Judah, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning to the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. So Judah, when he was writing, he originally wanted to write this great long piece on our shared salvation. Sounds fantastic. I'd love to read it sounds nice and, and happy and cheerful but he found it more important in fact he says uh he found it necessary the word in there is almost compelling like he was almost forced by the spirit to instead write and refute these false teachers there are a lot of people who like to say well you know we don't need to get into arguments we don't need to debate these things well, we just stick to the big stuff you know like salvation and that's nice a nice sentiment but in reality there is a ever-present and serious danger that comes from false teaching, and we need to address it quickly. So we're meant to stand ready and be ready against false teaching when we see it, not just waiting for the right moment. And so Jude, he, he urges us to contend earnestly for this faith, to strive for it earnestly. So we're addressing false teachers is more urgent than some other teachings. This is important. Addressing these false teachings is more urgent than even things like writing a nice piece on our shared salvation. We need to be ready and contend for the faith. And these false teachers, here's what Jude says. He says they snuck into these congregations. They don't come in and say, hi, I'm Ben and I'm here to tell you lies. No, they come in quietly and slowly corrupt your, your, your way of thinking. Lastly, they reject Christ's authority and embrace sin. They say, God doesn't have the authority to tell me what to do. I do. So here's our next comparison. Here's our next section where Judah gets into and starts comparing them to, to, to historical rebels. This is verses 5 through 8 here I'm going to go through first. And I'm going to go through verses 9 through 12. So verses 5 through 8. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. 
and the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. So here in the verse, first section, he's talking about rebels. Next section, he's going to talk about people who lead other people in distress. To stray. So I'm going to read this section. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous word of condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand, and what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged themselves into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. So next slide, I'm going to have to look at these things. Um, so we've got three examples of people being punished by God, and we've got this transitionary example of the debate between uh, Moses and or Michael over Moses' body. It's an example of how we should treat people in authority, and then three examples of people leading others to destruction. So we've got the Israelites on their exodus who re refused God's authority, saw God's goodness, and refused to accept it. You have the angels who were in God's presence. They had a place and purpose, and they left it. And then you have Sodom and Gomorrah who refused to live the way that God wanted us to and instead plunged the world into darkness through sin. This is the punishment that these false teachers are facing and the punishment that they will bring us to if we follow them. Then we have an example with Michael and Satan disputing. And what Michael does here is he doesn't, he doesn't offer criticism of the devil. He doesn't uh, uh, curse the devil. Instead, he says, the Lord rebuke you. So he knows that it is God's place to rebuke even someone as awful as Satan. But these false teachers, they come and they give themselves authority and they reject those who are in authority. Then we have three examples of people leading others to destruction. Cain, who created this city of death, be the father of murder. You have Balaam, who despite being corrected by God and seeing God encouraged the Israelites into sin and led many into death. You have Korah who led thousands into death through plague because of his own pride. Uh, these are the people that we are to look out for and they all lead people to death and to destruction. This is why it is urgent that we address false teaching when it comes up because false teaching, it's not a matter of being uncomfortable. It's not a matter of someone being wrong or having wrong think. No, it's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And these are things that we need to engage with when they show up, not just wait around for them for the time to be right. So here's our, our next section, verses 12 through 13. These people, they're dangerous reefs at your love feasts. As they eat with you without reverence. They're shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds. Trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. So we, we've looked through all these. We, we know what they mean. Now let's talk about what they apply to us. So in the next slide, I've got them all listed out, all these metaphors. So let's look at the next slide here. 
the false teachers, they're deadly. They take from you. They'll lead you astray. They're like dangerous reefs. They're hidden under the water, but when you hit them, they will sink you. They're selfish shepherds. They care only for themselves, and they will lead you to death. They will let you wander. They don't care about you. Waterless clouds, they seem to offer some hope. I know we have people who tell us, this year is going to be a year of prosperity for you. Just give me 300, 300% of all your money, and then, and then God will give back. They're offering you false hope. Fruitless, twice-dead trees, you put so much effort into these things, you care for them, and they take and give nothing. They are dead, they have no fruit, they do not produce what is good, they do not have the Spirit of God in them. They're like wild waves. They're chaotic, unpredictable, and they are deadly. They will sink us and bring us down into the depths. Lastly, they are wandering stars. They will lead us astray, and the ending of that is eternal darkness. So our next section here is where Judith says that these false teachers, they're nothing new. They've been protected forever. So I'm going to talk about this section. Verse 14, it was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way, concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against them. I think you said ungodly often enough there. <laughs> these people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. These people create divisions. When they come in, they will divide you. So there's two predictions here. You've got Enoch. Enoch's at the beginning of the world. I've got this on the next slide. Enoch's at the beginning of the world. He's predicting false teachers. Jesus and the apostles at the time, these are the contemporaries. This is the present. Them saying, look, the false teachers are still going to be there. And this is me telling you that it's still going to be there. So false teachers, they're not new. Enoch predicted them at the beginning of time, like I said. They're not going away. The apostles predicted them in their time. I'm telling you now that they're still here. And lastly, there is a day of judgment and restoration coming. And that's what the last section of Jude gets into. So we're going to break this last section of Jude into two parts. So Jude verses 20 through 22. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled with flesh. Now we get into some of the happier parts. We've talked about the false teachers. Now it is, what do we do? What do we do when these people sneak in? What do we do when these people start to lead people astray? Well, we need to be prepared. We need to contend for the faith. So build ourselves up in the faith. Know what we're talking about. I talked about it at the beginning that uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do that lecture is because there's this misconception that, that Christians, they just have this blind faith in this book of fables and fairy tales. That's not true. Now, some of us might have a blind faith in the Bible and might trust it and not, uh, not test it, not read it carefully, not do the scholarly work that I've talked about. And, you know, the end result will be fine. But the difficult thing about having a blind faith, even in the correct thing, is that a blind faith can easily be pushed 
in the wrong direction and you don't have a foundation upon which you're built. So build yourselves up in the faith. Then pray in the spirit. There's a lot of debate over what this means exactly. Uh, I'm just going to give you the simplest one. Just pray and know that the spirit dwells within you and is praying on your behalf in ways that you cannot pray. Pray. So just pray. <laughs> Put it simply. Uh, lastly, keep, the next thing, keep yourself in the love of God. So remain in his love and in, in his church. His church will build you up and in his love and, and, and do what is right. And then lastly, prepare for and wait for Christ's return. Oh, Christ's return is going to be fantastic and good and a blessing. And be, be ready for it. Be waiting for it. Pray that he finds you um, faithful. There's a parable that Christ talks about of the servants, and the master goes away some, uh, for an indiscriminate amount of time. Some servants say, well, we'll basically, we'll do our chores later. He'll come back later. A better example might be when you're kids, and your mom says, hey, can you thaw the chicken? And then you don't take it out until you hear the, you hear the grapple in the driveway, and you're like, please, I know that this chicken needs 10 hours to thaw, but please, God, let it thaw in 10 seconds. <laughs> or do the laundry. That was another one that I did all the time. Can you move the laundry over to the dryer? But basically, the, the parable is that some servants do the, the Lord's work and some don't, and the Lord comes back and finds and blesses the ones who did the work and scolds the ones who didn't. So be ready for the return. Next part that, that Judah, Judah talks about is how we should, so we, we know what we need to do for our own selves, now we need to know how we engage these people. So he puts them in three different categories. So he says, first, have mercy on those who waver. These are the people who are being led astray. Those are the people, they're not, they're not against Christ, they may even be Christians, but they are wavering. They, they might have that blind faith that I talked about, and that blind faith is being pushed in the wrong direction. Have mercy on them. Bring them back into the fold. Build them up. Teach them. Help them to be able to defend their faith as you build up your own self to defend your faith. These are the people who they're, they're, they just need help. They're not enemies. They just need help. The next group is, is snatch some from the fire. These are people who they are sinners. They are people who, which we're all sinners. They, these are people who are in opposition to God. They will end up in hell and they need our help and they need to hear the gospel. But they're not necessarily false teachers. They're not necessarily anti-Christian. These are just people who are astray. They need to be saved, but understanding that there's urgency there, like you're saving someone out of a fire. You don't just wait, yeah, maybe it's not a good time. You know, I'll get, I'll get them out of that burning building later. No, now. Then lastly is have mercy on others, but be wary of the sin that they might try and lead you into. He says, uh, hating the flesh, which is a, a common phrase used for sin, so hating sin even so much as the garment. So hating the flesh so much that you are even uh, opposed to the clothes that they're wearing. Be wary of the sin that they will try and lead you into. Be wary of their false teaching. These aren't people we want to give up on, but it comes with a much higher level of, of, of cautiousness when you're engaging with these people. So our last couple verses here, this is where we can take a lot of hope uh, because Judah ends it with a lot of promise and reminding us of God's character. So here, last two verses, we're almost there. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Yeah. Uh, that 
God has the power to make us stand in his presence. He will resurrect us on the, on the last day that we will be able to stand in, in eternal glory with him without blemish. That's what he wants. And that he has the power to keep us from stumbling. God wants us to be with him. God will help us in this, this difficult fight against false teachers, against apostates. It is not one we have to fight alone, but one that God is on our side in. And that is comforting. And I just want to, so I've got a verse that will just break, or a, a next slide that will just break this down a little bit, and then a final slide after that. So God is able to, to keep us from stumbling. He can make us stand in his presence without blemish. And I just want to repeat the last verse again. It's on this last slide. It's a thought that I want us to remember. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Just, I want that to be our prayer. I want that to be just something that we can say honestly and truthfully. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and the worship team can come back up. God, I thank you for this time that we've had together. We thank you for your word, Lord, that even when it is difficult, that it still has messages for us, and that through work and study, we can uncover what those messages are, but that the simple message is still there and available to us. God, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and build each other up. We ask that you continue to help us build ourselves up and build each other up, that we would prepare for false teachers. They were there in the beginning. They were there in the days of Christ. They're here today as well. And they will be here until the end. So God, just help us to be prepared and ready. We thank you that you are good, that you are on our side in this. You are able to keep us from stumbling and that in the last day you will help us stand in your presence without blemish. God, to you just be all the glory, majesty, and power for all time.